Amazing. So, in 1963, at a time when racism and oppression was at an all-time high, Martin Luther King delivered his famous speech, I Have a Dream. In it, he inspired millions of people to feel and act upon the injustice that was so prevalent at the time. By his words alone, he fueled a flame of hope, of righteous frustration, a desire for change, for something more than the society in which they lived. You see, words, words have unimaginable power. Oops. On one hand, words can make relationships. With them, you can tell your loved ones how much you love them. With them, you can inspire change. You can restore relationships, request forgiveness, make things whole again. But equally, on the other hand, words have also great power and potential for evil. With them, we can lie, we can hurt and deceive, and just as easily destroy. Now, I've been married. Uh, I'm married to my lovely wife, Rachel, and we've been married for three years. And throughout my three years of marriage, I have learned a few lessons about the importance of words. At one time, Rachel and I, we had just finished a lovely meal at a restaurant, and Rachel decided that she wanted to try every single ice cream that was on the dessert menu, and that's what we did. So out came vanilla bean, delicious, and just like that, it was gone. Next up was green tea ice cream, that was delicious also, and just like that, it was gone. And next up was black sesame as well, also delicious. And just as we were about to finish that, I said to Rachel, Rachel, are you sure you want to eat that? And so as I was sitting on the couch later that night, I was just thinking to myself, was it something that I had said? You see, words are important. But why do they matter so much? What is it about words uh, that what do they actually reveal? Let me put it to you this way. How would you describe the experience you have when you have a genuine conversation with another person? A genuine, deep conversation you have when you have with another person. In high school, we would sometimes call this type of conversation a heart-to-heart. A time when you lay everything bare with your emotions, your fears, your aspirations, you put that forward to each other, and with that, you make a deep connection. Now, that's really interesting because that means through our words, we can share something of our innermost being. We can communicate our feelings, our desires. Genuine words connect us with other people, and by them, we can, in some ways, understand more about the other person, as well as reveal more about ourselves to the other person. Matthew chapter 12, verse 34 says, For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And so today I want to ask you this question. Has God ever spoken to you? What if I told you that God speaks to me? Would you think I'm strange or 
crazy? How about you turn to the person next to you and ask that person, does God speak to you? I'll give you a couple of moments to do that. Now, I am really curious to know all your answers and perhaps to know even some of your experiences that you might have. But the fact of the matter is this. Whether you like it or not, the God of the universe, the one who commands the stars and the heavenly hosts, the one who holds the whole world in the palm of his hands, that very God has spoken to you. And not as you might expect, not as a king might, with a booming voice and rolling thunder and great proclamations, though he can and does do that, he also speaks lovingly and gently and personally. You see, our God is a God who speaks, and through his word, he reveals himself to us. So let's turn again to our psalm, uh, our passage today, Psalm 19, and we're going to discover three different ways in which God speaks. Three different ways in which God speaks. And my first point is this, God speaks through creation. Read again, oh sorry, first an illustration. Now I wonder how many of you enjoy a nice walk along the beach. You can feel the soft sand that's underfoot, you can hear the rolling and crashing of waves, and the warm sun is gently kissing your skin, and you feel at ease. Or perhaps the beach is not your thing, and perhaps you like uh, a, a skyline at sunset. You're at the top of a tall, tall building, and from there you can see the vast expanse of the city, and you can see the orange sunlight touching everything for as far as the eye can see. You see, there's creation and nature. These things, they stir something within us, a sense of wonder, of beauty, and perhaps something more. It can produce a sense of peace, and sometimes it can even make us ponder the meaning of life as we realize our insignificance in the light of its grandeur. Why? Why does creation do this to us? Well, in the same way that thousands of people are drawn to artworks like the Mona Lisa and the sculptures of Michelangelo, the paintings of David and Van Gogh, the wonders of creation are a tapestry and the handiwork of God. Read with me verses 1 to 6. Sorry, it's a bit small. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, 
like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The beauty and splendor of creation reveals something of the wonder and majesty of its creator. Though creation does not speak, it doesn't have any words. It is, in fact, silent. They are a glorious tapestry that hints to, that alludes to, an equally glorious God. But there are a couple of problems. Firstly, creation is vague. Creation is vague. Verse, read verse 3 with me again. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. So you see, although creation has that ability to stir something in us, and it can feel like there's something more out there, it's not explicit. Creation is silent. And so because of that, many interpretations arise. One such example of that is some people take the beauty of creation, the wonder of it, and end up putting it on a pedestal. They elevate created things, and instead of worshipping the creator, they make creation their God. That's where we get terms like Mother Nature. Second problem, creation is subject to sin. <clears throat> Every year, tens, hundreds, if not millions of people lose their homes, their livelihoods, their families and loved ones to natural disasters, natural causes. Famine, flood, earthquakes, hurricanes, these are but a few of the things that rip through our world. And rest assured, when people face that, they're not awestruck by the beauty of creation, but rather awestruck by its ferocity and its devastation. See, just like the rest of the world, creation has not escaped the consequences of sin. Romans 8 says that creation has been subjected to frustration. It groans as in the pains of childbirth. Even creation is waiting eagerly to be made anew, to be freed from the bondage and decay of sin. And so to summarize, creation is wonderful. It stirs something in us. But there are a couple of problems. Firstly, it's vague. It's open to many interpretations. And secondly, creation does not escape the taint of sin. So if this is the case, is there another way that God speaks to us? Which leads us to our second point. God speaks through the law. Let's read the next part of our passage, 7 to 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. 
Now, for a bit of context, at the time of the writing, David would have been referring to the laws outlined in the first five books of the Bible, the first five books of the Bible, and his readers would have been acutely aware of this. Now, if you've ever tried to read some of the law books within those first five, uh, such as Leviticus or Deuteronomy, you would know that they are filled with hundreds upon hundreds of laws that may seem strange and even ridiculous to us in this day and age. Nonetheless, David describes the Word of God, describes these laws in verse 10 as being more precious than gold and sweeter than honey. So what is it about God's law that makes, him, that makes them so precious? What is it about them that makes them so precious? Well, firstly, God's word and law give instructions on how to live in the Lord's favor and blessing. You see, the law is quite literally the word of God transcribed to the people of Israel. As Moses ascended Mount Sinai and received the stone tablets, it was God's word in stone for them. With them, they had instructions on how to live how to conduct themselves in order to be set apart from the other nations. They knew how to, they learned how to be holy. They learned how to please God and ultimately receive his blessing and favor. Following the law, and thereby following the law giver, gave insight into how life should be and could be lived. Secondly, secondly, God's law reveals something about people. Often we think about having freedom as uh, freedom means, we, often we think about having freedom as a means of having unlimited choice. We think that having unlimited choice means we have the best freedom. But could you imagine if one day the government decided that there would be no more road laws? Can you imagine the disaster, the chaos that would ensue? People would be driving every which way, not using their blinkers, although some of us probably don't use those already. <laughs> but there would be absolute chaos. Some people would be going 10 kilometers an hour. Some people would be going 110. Wrong side of the road driving, it would be a disaster. Something probably like that. You see, laws, laws promote order. They bring about unity and coherence to life and paradoxically are the parameters by which freedom is most amplified. If you know the law, you can play by the law and in some sense bring about the most value in your life by obeying the law. People need laws in order to survive. And thirdly, why is the law so precious? Well, it reveals something about God. From the law, we understand more of who God is, what he holds in esteem, what he values, the upright, justice, purity, holiness, fairness, compassion, order, and unity. These are all things that God values, and above all, God loves and values 
obedience. He does not leave his people blind to try and figure out, oh, how do I please God? What can I do to make God happy? No, he doesn't do that. He offers the law as a guidance and a path for his people to please him. But for those of us who know, who have the benefit of knowing the whole story, we know that there is a problem. We know that instead, God's law ultimately revealed just how far short we fall from God's standard of righteousness. Only last year, as we went through the book of Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel and Judges, we saw that Israel not only just made the odd, occasional, accidental mistake, no, they intentionally, purposefully, willfully, and persistently disobeyed God's commands. Judges 17.6 says, everyone did as they saw fit, and as a result, they inflicted upon themselves the very dire consequence, God's righteous judgment. You see, because of the sinfulness of people, the law, instead of being the path to God's good favor and blessing, instead became judgment to the people of God. The law is only these things, refreshing to the soul, joy to the heart, light to the eyes. It is only these things for those who actually obey, for those who cannot and will not. Only God's judgment awaits. And so we are at an impasse. God speaks through creation, but it's vague. God speaks through the law, but it condemns us. So what is God's answer to all of this? Well, thankfully, the law is not the last thing that God says to us. Consider this verse from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 to 2. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. Jesus, Jesus is God's final word to us. When Jesus came down from earth 2,000 years ago, Jesus, the Son of the Almighty God, the divine King, the divine Word through which the entire universe was made and through which the entirety of creation is held together, He cast all that glory aside. King He was, He donned the clothing of a servant and made Himself in human likeness. He didn't come to rule and conquer as many thought and hoped he would. He came to rescue and heal. Friends, there will be a few moments in your life when you will hit rock bottom. When you are at the end of your tether and at the depths of your despair. Many of you here today have already experienced this. Your marriage is falling apart. That long-term relationship just didn't work out. Your father is sick with dementia. You lose your wife to cancer. Your depression is always above you 
and your anxiety is crippling you from the inside and everything just feels too much, in those moments know this. God has spoken to you. God has spoken to you and he says, I have not abandoned you. In your misery, in your tragedy, in your agony, in your wretchedness and sin, I have not abandoned you. Here is my son whom I love. I give him to you because I love you too. Will you put your faith and trust in me? In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus is everything God wants to say to you. As he suffered and bled on the cross, he knows your pain. As he breathed his last breath and died, he offers you a path to redemption and forgiveness. And as he rose again and conquered death and ascended to new life, he gives you hope, hope for a future free from sin. Let me invite the um, band up again as I close. Today we've heard that God indeed speaks. He speaks in powerful and wonderful ways through creation, through his law, but ultimately he speaks through his son, Jesus Christ. God's word is full of life. It brings healing and restoration. It mediates, it makes peace. It's full of grace and love, but also justice and fairness. And so as we reflect on this, I want us to consider how we might use our words. Read with me the verses 12 to 14 of our passage. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgressions. May these words of my mouth... And this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You see, from these verses, we see that David recognizes his own sinfulness in light of God's word. He is repentant. He seeks forgiveness. And he also prays that his words might be pleasing to God. Consider also these verses from Matthew chapter 12, verse 36 to 37. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. And again in James chapter 3, verse 7 to 10, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise the Lord, our Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise 
and cursing my brothers and sisters, this should not be. It's clear that our words hold great weight. They can be used for great evil and great good, but not both. So how will you use your words? How will you use your words when you speak to your friends, when you speak to your family and to your colleagues and to strangers and to your brothers and sisters here at SWEC? How will you use your words? How will you use your words when you speak to yourself? My challenge for us today is this. God uses his words for incredible good, for restoration and forgiveness, for healing and redemption. So let's put into practice the charge of Ephesians 4.29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Let's be intentional with our words. We can either bring life or we can bring death with our words. And so today I challenge you to think of someone in your life who might need your word of encouragement today. And as in the prayer of David, may our words be ever pleasing in God's sight.